and welcome to this week's Cycling Industry News podcast with Mark Nicholson of Vivacity Labs. This podcast is brought to you in association with our partners at Zara Fisher. So, Mark, for people that perhaps haven't heard of Vivacity Labs, tell us a little bit about the software that you use and the people using it. Uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. Um, great to be here. So at Vivacity, what we do is we help cities and local authorities that run those cities to first gather better data about what's happening on the road networks and then to optimise those road networks using that data. So we help them to understand how many different vehicles of different kinds are going past, how fast they're going, how long it takes them to get from A to B, how they're all interacting and behaving on the roads. Are the cyclists all undertaking at this junction or are are the cars all turning right through the through the opposing traffic? So really getting under the skin of what's happening on the transport network. And the reason for this is to inform the way that our transport networks evolve. So thinking about the future of roundabouts, of pedestrian crossings, of new bypasses, um, of helping to inform what happens at a really micro level. So looking at optimizing individual traffic light timings for, to make sure that an individual bike that's going through can get through that particular green light all the way up to planning some of the biggest pieces of infrastructure in the UK. So for us, this is all about helping the cities to, to improve the way that their transport networks operate using better data to do so. Mm-hmm. We're already doing this in quite a few different towns and cities across the UK. We're now in about 40 different um, regions and working with a variety from uh, fairly small um, sort of settlements of only 50,000 people all the way up to the likes of Transport for London and Highways England who run all the motorways in the UK. Mm-hmm. And how exactly does does the software actually work? So what we do is we deploy a sensor on the side of the road. Each of those sensors contains a camera, a processor, and a um, sort of 4G modem to send the data back. And so we take a video stream, we use AI on that um, sort of local processor in order to extract all the insights that I was just talking about it. All of those insights are completely anonymous. And those anonymous pieces of data then come back to the local authority and we discard all of the personal data from the video itself. So it is AI to understand what's going on, but it's AI in a very European way. It's a privacy-centric citizen-first system which is designed to understand what's going on without giving any personal data to us, to the authorities, to anyone involved in the system. So it's all about gathering that better data in an anonymous way. Yeah. And would you say that is one of the the challenges, obviously, with um, AI technology in particular, is keeping that very private? Yeah, I think we're we're seeing an interesting evolution in the world um, where clearly China is carving its own path down a bit more of an authoritarian route. um, And America is driving AI, but in perhaps a slightly more commercially driven way. Um, you, people may be aware of the of Google's efforts in Toronto to found a, um, a smart city where advertising is a large part of that future, and that got shot down on privacy grounds. We're trying to make something which is, as I say, much more European and that holds that privacy piece at the heart of the way that AI works. And I think the AI industry is really grappling with that balance between privacy um, and data and the power of data 
And I think right now we're in a quite happy middle ground in that we don't need to gather this private data in order to, um, to make good use of the AI. And so that's the, the path that we're carving forwards, which uh, hopefully others will adopt in time. Yes, definitely. And um, how has the kind of interest grown over, over time, you know, among the cities and transport planners that they have? So we as a company started about five, five and a half years ago. Um, and in that time, we've grown from, from nothing um, to being 60 people today, uh, as I say, working in 40 different towns and cities. So it's been a really interesting journey helping people to, um, to evolve and their capabilities in this space. And I think there are a number of parts of that to that. I think one is there's a level of reluctance um, to adopt some of these new technologies, particularly given people were going around selling something that looked a bit similar 10, 15, 20 years ago, but at that time it didn't work. And there was the, the previous generation before the, the current wave of AI that everyone's aware of, that previous generation was much less effective. And so people have been burnt by um, previous generations of these technologies. We've now got something that does work at large scale, hence the rollouts that we're doing. Um, but I think there was a level of reluctance in the early days to, to try something new because people have been burnt by the past. Um, I think there's also a level of learning that's happening in the industry in terms of what to do with this data. I think mm -hmm. if you look at an industry like retail, um, clearly data was very early into the retail ecosystem. Tesco Club Card was one of the, the earliest of mass um, adopters of data, and that's one of the reasons Tesco became so effective. And I think we're only just seeing some of the same transitions happen within the transport ecosystem using some of those same kinds of data um, analysis techniques and understanding of data, um, but feeding it into the way that our transport networks are operated. So a couple of things that fed into it all being a relatively slow transition, but uh, I think now, as I say, five years down the road, we're really in a fantastic place and seeing lots and lots of local authorities start to adopt this technology to help them to have a slightly more data-driven approach to, um, to understanding and planning the roads. Yes. And would you say that, um, so the software that you have, um, does it have the weight to kind of determine how that road space is best being used in terms of kind of, you know, efficiency in general? So I suppose when you're thinking about efficiency on the roads, you're thinking about how many how many people can you get through in a given period of time. It's fundamentally what it comes down to. And so to look at that, you need to understand the different sizes of different vehicles, the different speeds of different vehicles, the likely occupancy of those different vehicles. And one of the lovely things about computer vision in this space is that you can gather all those things from a video feed. You can understand what all of those look like. And then that's where the whole privacy piece becomes really interesting. You need to be super careful about how you then actually use that data because video is clearly intrusive, which is why we discard the video at source. We only keep the anonymous data, but um, we can gather all of those kinds of insights from video feeds, at which point you can understand how many people of different uh, user types were going on that road, how efficient was that new cycle lane that someone installed versus what was there before. And you can look at the, the ultimate capacity of those different um, road systems at different points in time um, over the day, over the course of a year. You can try to look at the peaks, look at what caused congestion. So yes, we can get to a point where we really 
dig under the surface of what efficiency looks like on the roads and give that insights to the authority about whether their interventions have ultimately increased capacity or conversely decreased capacity. And I think we've seen a lot of really interesting interventions recently and in lockdown where the public have turned around and said, we think this is decreasing capacity, this is causing queues and congestion. Um, and for us, part of the point here is to give the authority the data to say either, yes, you're right, and this is a bad idea, or to push back strongly and say, no, no, we, we can prove that there are thousands of cyclists using this every day. Look at the data. This was the right thing to do. So it's about supporting those decisions and making sure that those are driven by um, real data rather than by gut feel and politics. Mm -hmm. And just quickly touching on kind of efficiency, you know, within cities again, um, obviously at Cycling Industry News, the last couple of years, we've noticed that um, the e-bike market and particularly e-scooter um, market as well has kind of, you know, grown dramatically over the last few years um, with sustainability and, you know, just commuting in general. Um, do you personally think that um, the electric scooter, in theory, could be capable of, you know, moving the most people if obviously the, if that is legislated for? I suppose there's an interesting balance between the, the different modes here. Um, I think an e-scooter doesn't, doesn't take up much less space on the road than a bike i'm just sort of i'm trying to think it through as we're sitting here um but i think e-scooters and bikes are probably broadly similar e-scooters accelerate faster um and typically have higher top speeds unless you're talking about a, a lycra cloud cyclist going downhill kind of thing um so i i suspect that your capacity is slightly higher with e-scooters than bikes even and bikes are typically much higher than, than cars and other modes so i could see an argument for that however I think we should think carefully about things like how the roads actually feel as well as their ultimate capacity. I think e-scooters tend to accelerate very rapidly. Um, they have quite high top speeds given that there is no protection for, for their riders. Um, and so I think there's also an element here about how, how safe we feel on those roads. And the, there have been clearly lots of um, incidents involving e-scooters and pedestrians or cyclists. And so I think it's about making sure that we have, as you say, the regulatory framework to make sure that, that is safe and then find the right balance and mix of different modes. Because I think cycling will always have a place in our hearts on that road ecosystem. I think it's really critical that we, um, we continue to promote a mode that actually gets people not just from A to B, actually gives them some exercise while doing so. And so I think it's about finding the balances between all these different modes as we as we evolve as a society. Um, but I think e-scooters are an important part of that mix and they allow people who would perhaps be less comfortable with cycling, who perhaps couldn't cycle the distance that uh, they're trying to travel, but who could take an e-scooter. And so I think it it provides just another option within that ecosystem. Um, but as you say, it's a, it's a pretty efficient option from a road space perspective. Mm -hmm. And in terms of kind of, you know, everything that you've gathered that you've seen so far, um, what would you say has been your most, you know, interesting in terms of the data um, and the studies that you've done so far? Hmm, interesting question. So I suppose we've seen lots of really, really interesting data sets coming out of COVID inevitably. So mm -hmm. in the early days of COVID, we started providing data to various bits of central government 
to help inform them on how, how lockdowns were going. Our data is a large part of some of the graphs that were behind Boris Johnson um, when looking at transport ecosystems. So I think there were some really fascinating analyses that came out of that and looking at how different areas got busier and quieter. So, for example, looking at how rush hour changed as schools were turned on and off effectively. And that's something that it's always been really hard to do historically because mm -hmm. you can't make a change of that scale within the ecosystem. You, you don't have the counterfactual. And so you've got to try to work out the impacts of things like schools, but that's impacts by people going away on holiday and by other factors that are happening as schools um, break up and go back to, to term. So I think the last year from a, a data scientist perspective has been a fantastic experiment of trying out lots of different things. Um, and actually that's given us lots of insights into how a lot of those um, ecosystems really work under the skin and where some of the peaks come from. So, for example, we've seen that a lot of the um, a lot of the peaks of cycling walking are driven by schools, but curiously, not just at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Actually, the 5 p.m. peak is strongly correlated to schools as well. And so, the hypothesis is that people who are um, traveling in school to collect their kids then might take their kids to some after-school activities that then contributes to the 5 p.m. peak. And so, actually, you've got um, some really interesting correlations buried in there. But otherwise, it was really, really difficult for us to see. Yeah, definitely. And on the subject of the coronavirus pandemic, we did see quite a dramatic increase in the people cycling. Um, do you think this increase is set to continue? I think the most interesting point of cycling data from the past year was looking at where cycling was increasing and decreasing. And we mm -hmm. saw that in cities where there was historically not very much cycling, um, cycling increased dramatically, whereas in places where there had been quite a lot of cycling, like Oxford and Cambridge, for example, um, cycling flatlined or decreased at times. And that was partly driven by the university student population, partly driven by cycle commuting. But I think what it really highlighted to me is that we saw a big change in the um, use case and reason that people were cycling in the past year. Lots more people than ever before started cycling for leisure reasons. Going the weekend spikes of cycling were huge, and so people were were going out on their bike to to try a, a new activity. Fundamentally, um, we saw that people couldn't buy bikes anymore because so many people had bought them during lockdown. There, there was just no stock left, and so I think there has been a a bit of an eye opening experience for a lot of people in terms of what cycling can offer. And so I think there will be some um, long-term residual effects from that. I think a lot of people have realized that cycling can be A, a fun hobby, and B, a valid way of getting to work when they can't use the bus, for example. So I think we will see a, a continued increase in cycling, and I think cycling has benefited from the pandemic. I do think, unfortunately, that cars will have benefited as much or perhaps even more, and the loser in all this is public transport. Um, and so I think we'll see some interesting mode shifts in the next um, couple of years, which local authorities are frantically trying to, to cope with. Clearly, if lots more people start using cars, um, we have a problem with congestion on the roads. So local authorities are trying to promote cycling. I do think that people are um, becoming increasingly open to cycling as a result of some of their lockdown experiences exactly who will end up winning that, that battle, if you like, um, and which mode will increase most remains to be seen. As I say, I think the, the loser in all this is going to be public transport. 
which is a shame in a world where we all want to promote um, more public transport and more cycling and reductions in car use. Yes, definitely. So, and um, also just kind of touching on what you said at the beginning there um, with, you know, you kind of have to look at where it is that people are cycling and how that's changed. Um, obviously in cities in particular, um, there's been quite a lot of discussion on kind of infrastructure specifically um, with cycling, you know, cycle lanes being either implemented in certain places or actually removed in, you know, certain areas of around London. Um, what kind of data have you have you gathered, you know, regarding kind of infrastructure in general? So often when those schemes are installed, we work with the authority involved to help them understand what the impact of that scheme is. And so I think for a lot of our clients, it's about gathering that better, better understanding of, uh, of whether these schemes are the right thing to do or not. Um, I think in general, we've seen that a lot of the schemes that are put out have had pretty good uptake and have had a, a positive impact on the, um, on the society and on the way that the roads work. There have been some notable examples which have not, um, not seen that impact. And so I think that's where um, people are, are right to say, well, what was this the right thing to do? But the only way that you can really test that is by putting the structure in place and by gathering the data on whether it was effective or not. So I actually think the way that the authorities have started doing it with um, temporary lanes installed to start with, gather the data on whether those are used or not. And if they are, then upgrade them to something permanent. I think that's actually a really effective way to use public money to experiment with the transport system and to say, what do people really want? So otherwise it's very difficult to know where do people want to cycle to and from? Unless there's a cycle lane there, a lot of people might not be thinking about it. A lot of people might be afraid of trying that cycling route. So I think that the way that local authorities have done it is very sensible. Um, they've made some wrong decisions along the way, some things that later been proved to be um, ineffective cycle lanes, mm -hmm. but I think they had to try it. And so I think actually that the general approach um, from DFT and from, from local government has been very sensible. And it's been part of it, embracing a more agile way of thinking about public sector and the transport network. Yeah. And in terms of kind of just, just general trends that you've seen, obviously outside of COVID, um, I know everything's kind of COVID central at the minute. Um, what kind of, you know, trends potentially outside of that have you seen with regards to the kind of data that you've that you've collected? So pre-COVID, there was uh, there has always been a long-term trend towards more and more cycling. We're seeing um, lots of public investment in cycling at, a, at an aggregate level. Um, beyond that, I think it's quite hard to comment on, on trends. I think the lifespan of the company has not been long enough to, to see some of the societal trends. Five years or so um, doesn't give you very much um, capability to watch what's happening at, at some of those levels. So I don't think that we've, we've seen that much by way of other trends beyond hyper-local effects that uh, are probably less relevant for your podcast. But um, I think there are, uh, there are clearly changes happening in the ecosystem. And I think COVID has probably been the, the biggest impact that any of us have seen in a generation in the transport networks. And so everything else is largely masked by that in the last year or two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that you mentioned that the company's only been around for five years, but where do you see it in the next five years? So the goal for us 
is that this, these data sets that we're gathering are really just the starting point. I think we've seen the explosion of AI across um, society and an explosion of data from some of those early, let's just gather the data approaches um, to something where there is much, much better understanding and use of that data, not just being fed into humans, but being fed automatically into various forms of optimization. And so I think for us, the next stage that we are just starting to roll out now is thinking about how to use this data to optimize the traffic network automatically. And so that starts off by looking at traffic lights. How can you prioritize the traffic lights for cyclists? How can you prioritize the buses? How can you adapt to that for different times of day such that you can um, optimize for air pollution at 8 a.m. when all the kids are walking to school, um, but for cycling throughput at 5 p.m. when you're trying to deal with uh, peak rush hour? So for me, this is about giving the cities the tools that they need to be able to make those granular changes to the transport network, to be able to optimize it in a truly data-driven way, not just by humans looking at everything retroactively or trying to um, use sort of human knowledge across an entire city the size of London, that becomes very difficult to do, but feeding a lot of that into optimization algorithms where the human sets the policy, and but then the optimization algorithm actually executes from there. So it's about leveling up the transport infrastructure. It's about giving them the tools to be able to implement policy much more effectively. And that starts off with data. You can't do any of this without great data, but then feeds that into ever more sophisticated optimization systems, particularly as you start to think about the long-term future of um, this ecosystem, like the likes of Uber that connects autonomous vehicles, the all the tech that's coming into this ecosystem. And I think the cities need the technology to be able to cope with and adapt to that. And we're trying to give them the systems to be able to, as I say, implement those policies at a very granular level in a way that works with this broader tech ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Mark. It's been really great learning a little bit more about Vasti Labs. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this week's Cycling Industry News podcast. Mm -hmm.